Do you remember hymnals? Do you remember those things that we used to sing from? Uh, they're in front of you in the back of the pew. And I think it's 547 is the text for that hymn. At some point you should pick it up and you should read the words that were just sung. They were The, the beauty of those pieces is how theologically rich they are and how much is being said uh, in poetry. So thank you for that the offering of that song to us in that hymn. All right, are you all ready? Uh, my name is uh, Pastor John Jay. I am the lead pastor here, and I get to teach and preach this morning with you on friendship. Uh, we are in the middle of four weeks that are like pretty practical sets of teachings and sermons. Last week, we talked about the importance of worship, and you're back, so good job. It worked. And if you see somebody around you missing, you should call them this week. And you should tell them to listen to last week's sermon and just see what they say. This week, we're going to talk about friendship. Kind of debated what the way into this sermon would be because, well, in our congregation, we have, we have small groups or home groups or dinner groups that meet. And small group is not a phrase that shows up in the Bible. It's something that we talk about now, but really what I think those groups do well is they create the possibility for deep friendship. This is a very lovely time to come together, and we talked last week about what worship does, how it refocuses our desires and our affections toward God, toward God's good ends, and that is very important. But there is something different that happens when we are sitting shoulder to shoulder, right? Like when you and I have lunch, it's a different sort of experience. Correct. I should just preach from right here okay. the rest of the time. Okay. And I'll have a hard time writing. It would be very hard. Today we want to talk about friendship, about what happens when you stand shoulder to shoulder and face to face. Uh, so the anchor is becoming our kind of guiding metaphor for this. Last week we talked about how a church, especially a sanctuary, is modeled after something like a boat or a ship or an ark. So that we might move through the chaos of the world, these storms, and arrive at the other side safely and peacefully. And the anchor became this early symbol for Christianity, uh, grounding us in a world that is fluid and turning formless more and more. So this week's the second anchor. You ready? Let's get going. Uh, what's your What's your definition of a good friend? You know what I'm going for here, right? Like, who's the person who will tell you you have something in your teeth? That, that's a good friend. Why, here's the real question. Why is that such an awkward thing to do? It's not you that has the food in your teeth. It's them who have the food in their teeth. Why do we feel awkward by telling someone else that they look awkward? I don't know. But that's something about friendship, right? Or, like, if your flies down, or if you have a booger, or all of those sort of... I'm going to let you know that you should be socially embarrassed and you're not aware and that will establish that you and I are friends. If you tell me that I have spinach in my teeth, we're good. We're good for the future, right? So here's what I've been thinking about with friendship a lot is uh, I am not on Facebook anymore and I've just gone, I'm gonna go ahead and say that for as long as I am your pastor, I will reserve the right to rant about social media at least once a month. Just know if you're the kind of person like my spouse, this is the part where you can roll your eyes and say it doesn't matter. But I I really believe that that Facebook is like where friendships go to die. 
We might think that's where they go to thrive. And this is, you can ignore whatever I'm about to say next. But this is true for me. For me. When I, I had all of these friends and I got on these social media sites in college when they were just getting going. You remember? It was like this really small, intimate thing. And it felt like a secret. And I found out that over time, the people who I liked in real life, I liked less and less online. And I, I just decided at some point, I want to keep these people as whole humans and not as whatever they had become online. So I just got rid of my account so that I could keep liking the people who I had grown affectionate toward. But the language of friend is one that is pervasive inside this weird kind of digital disembodied world. And you can have online thousands of friends. Does anyone in here have more than like 300 friends online? Just raise your... Oh, I feel so socially isolated now. How many of you are friends with me online? Some of you are, yeah. Uh... Three, so, like, I don't know 300 people well. I definitely do not have 300 friends. I might have three. Like, real friends. But when you use the language of friendship in such a dispersed, and I would say, like, inch-deep way, uh, then it's going to take some work this morning for us to breathe new life into friendship as a spiritual or moral dimension of our lives. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that with worship being deeply formative for us in the image of God, friendship is another realm of spiritual formation that we should not and cannot forsake, which means that we have to reclaim this word. We have to reclaim this dimension of our life together, which means we're going to have to decidedly move away from places like Facebook and move toward places like sitting face-to-face or shoulder-to-shoulder and discover the goods that would only be found in those spaces. So I want to tell you about a friend I ran into this week. Um, asked if I could share this story, talk to him about it. Uh, he is a guy that I worked with and went to college with. His name's Casey. And he, uh, he and I worked together in a coffee shop for a while. And then I went off to North Carolina to go to grad school. And he went up to New York to... Uh, to begin a journalism career and also go to school for a little bit more um, education. And at some point, like three years after we'd kind of parted ways, I saw online that he was asking The Void um, if anybody wanted to be uh, pen pals. Do you know what a pen pal is? This is where people write things down by hand (laughs) with a pen or a pencil. And then you put it in the mail. I'm just, I want to make sure that it's clear what this activity is like. And it, it, it like is driven or flown something physical and dropped off at someone else's physical address. Addresses are places where people live in real life. I want to keep, I want to really drill down on this. Uh, and so he asked if anybody wanted to be his pen pal and immediately I, like, I raised my hand, whatever this is online. I clicked yes, me. And, uh, he and I have been writing letters to each other for years now, like a decade plus. Uh, so when I was in North Carolina, we started writing, went to Texas, went to Oklahoma. Now I'm here in California, and we've been writing to one another all this time. And it's the only way that we have stayed in contact. And it has been, um, if you don't, does anyone have a pen pal in here, the practice? I'm looking at all, all good people. 
All good people, yeah. If you don't have a, hey, today, maybe after the end of the sermon, you could think to yourself, who could be my pen pal? And that would make Jesus smile. I'll talk about why in a minute. So he and I have been writing back and forth, uh, and what I noticed was this the letter writing became a place of deep vulnerability. I was able to name with precision who I was becoming or who I hoped to become and, and ask some really incisive questions about his life and the arc of his life, and he did that back to me. It slowed down our conversations, right? It, it deepened them. This last letter I wrote to him, I was able to be like present to parts of my life that we, I mean, it, it changed our relationship. But here's what happened this week. He called me and he said, I'm coming to town. I was like, what? He's been in New York for this whole time. I haven't seen him in a decade. Let's see what letter writing can really do. So we showed up at a coffee shop in Highland Park together this week. And it was like no time had passed. It was, it was really, really beautiful. It reminded me of why the New Testament is mainly letters written to people across time and space. The way that our, our story is told in our sacred scriptures is through letters of affection. If you read the beginning of the book of Philippians, it is this. This is Paul's tone and tenor. I give thanks every time that I think of you pouring it out with joy for what you are laboring in, what we have labored in together. I yearn to be with you and to see you, but until I am, know that I love you. That's the language of most of the New Testament. And I didn't fully realize that we were practicing that even as we were writing these letters. Uh, side note, if you want to know what he looks like, uh, he looks like this walking away from a distance. It's like right there on the left. So if you're friends with me, at some point I'm going to take a creepy picture of you <laughs> while you're walking away on not realizing what's going on. A friendship is something that we were cultivating. I could name for you all of the friends who uh, have meant so much to me, have been able to change me. They're usually the people in my life that I'm not afraid to say I love you to, who are not family. Do you have people in your life who you say I love you to who are not family? You You should. Uh, Jesus talks about the understanding of family expanding into those who know and do God's will. And that there's some kind of affection that turns them into kin. So it's the folks who I say I love you to, and they say it back to me. Uh, Friendship, though, has this really important dimension in philosophy and gets picked up inside of Christian theology. Uh, So Aristotle, who wrote a ton about philosophy, spends an insane amount of time talking about friendship as a moral dimension of our lives together. And particularly talks about friendship in three different modes. One is the friendship of utility. So this is like, we're friends because you can help me get a better job. Or because you have uh, a table saw and I really need a table saw. So that's our friendship is that sort of thing. Uh, the other one is a friendship for pleasure. This is like I love to surf. You love to surf. You want to go surf together and that will make both of us feel very good. We sort of pursue the same sort of pleasurable ends together. Uh, friendship of pleasure. And the third, which Aristotle says is the highest form of friendship, is friendships of virtue. Friendships that might form us in a moral direction. Now, here's what really stinks. Is if you think you have a friendship of virtue with somebody, and it turns out to be something like a friendship of utility, 
that, I mean, it feels painful if that happens. You think that you are, that your lives are focused on the same sort of things, that you're being shaped in the same direction, that you have the same set of convictions and that you can trust one another, and then it shifts or it turns. It's a dangerous thing. It happened to me once. Uh, I, I was invited to lunch by somebody. And I thought, okay, this will be, like, I didn't know this person super well, but I thought they were inviting me into a deeper level of friendship. And uh, so this person invited me to lunch. I accepted. It was during a time when I was pretty busy, so it felt like a, a gesture of, of reciprocal affection back to be able to make the space in time. Uh, the lunch was at a country club. I don't hang out at country clubs very much. They usually don't let me stay for very long. And, uh, but I thought, this will be fun. This is fancy. So I walk into the room and I sit down uh, with this friend of mine and then the speaker comes out and I realize that they are about to sell me a whole lot of stuff I don't need. Because yes, I was at a multi-level marketing pitch meeting. Do you think that I'm friends with that person? No! That's the sort of feeling you have when you realize the friendship was based on one or the other one kind of like getting, pushing ahead. Now Aquinas, who is sort of the father of Catholic theological thought, which we inherit in Protestantism, takes Aristotle's understanding of friendship and applies it to Christianity and what it means to be friends one to another, places that moral formation within Christian practice, gives, again, gives a ton of space and time to friendship as a spiritual practice. It forces us to have to grapple with and reckon with why friendship has taken such a different understanding in our own time and place. One of my favorite writers, David White, poet, uh, says this about friendship. It says, a diminished circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble. Let me read a little bit more of this piece. The dynamic of friendship is almost always underestimated as a constant force in human life. A diminishing circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble, of overwork. Like, so here, what are the reasons that we might not make space and time to have deep friendships? Here we go. Overwork, too much emphasis on professional identity, forgetting who we, who will be there when our armored personalities run into the inevitable natural disasters and vulnerabilities found in the most average existence. This piece right here. But no matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend or sustaining a long, close friendship with another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the other nor of the self. The ultimate touchstone is witness. The privilege of having been seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another. To have walked with them and to have believed in them and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. For those of you who maintain like a, a devotional time in the morning by yourself as a spiritual practice, that's a good thing. But I want to say this very clearly. Uh, following Jesus is impossible to do alone. We were built for connection and the striving after God's kingdom is always couched in the language of a plurality. So Paul uses the word y'all a lot. I'm from the South, so I can use that word. Y'all, y'all, y'all. Speaking to multiple people. This kind of, like whatever I do in my own private devotional practice, that is a part of formation. But it is impossible the journey we are on to accomplish 
alone. And that language of being seen and of seeing another, I have some friends who lead a lot of marriage retreats and they use this language for marriage, that, that at its core, the beauty and possibility of a marriage is having someone to see you and for you to behold someone else. And in that sight, what we would call like the beatific vision or the beautiful vision, where you see God into the other person and they see God into you and you claim the best of them and drive that forward into the future. Like that is what is possible in deep friendship. So I want to tell you about when I was in hell. Uh, it's probably when you were in hell too. It was in seventh and eighth grade. Right? It's awful. I would not do seventh and eighth grade again to save my life. You couldn't pay me enough money. But here's what happened to me specifically. Uh, I was homeschooled from second to sixth grade. So I was really good at social interaction, guys. Like really, really good at it. No, not at all. Not at all. The world was way, like, had, had way more of an edge to it than I was used to. I just had climbed trees from second through sixth grade and called it school and studied math sometimes. So when I got into middle school, I was way out of my league, way out of familiar waters. Are y'all feeling a little hum coming back from over here? I'm hearing it too. But I don't know what to do about it. I feel like it's probably Ted's fault too. That's what I heard you say. <laughs> Perlman, is there something I could do to your monitor that would make it feedback less? Uh, it's kind of do. I don't know. It's buzzing back there. You're welcome to come see. <laughs> You're welcome to come see. While I tell them about hell, you can be back there doing something about the feedback if it happens. If not, don't worry about it. Um, the problem with middle school for me. It's better, I think. You did it. It's great. Can we all? You're the man. Okay. Thank you. Friendship. Friendship. <laughs> yeah, we have become friends, man. Um, the problem with seventh grade is not just seventh grade. It's not just becoming an adult and all the hormones that come along with that. The problem with seventh grade for me is that I didn't have anyone in my life. I didn't have any friends for two years. And I thought about this all week to try and figure out if this was normal. It's not normal to not have any friends in seventh and eighth grade. So here's what happened to me. I'll just be, and I've had counseling for this, so don't worry. But, uh, I'm serious. Uh, I remember keeping a notebook that sort of processed out loud what I was feeling inside. And it was very teenage angsty. But it got really, really dark at times because I was island. I was an island out there, and it felt hellacious. There's been a lot of tragedies that are just stacking one on top of the other, but there is this common denominator, which is often that those who are enacting great violence on the world are often isolated individuals, and that friendship is often a way to pull people from the brink of despair or of violence toward others and back toward a place of hope. I remember in ninth grade switching schools and immediately finding friends who were meaningful to me. And it changed everything. I was still just as awkward, right? Like, same haircut, same all the things that I should get made fun of. But I had a, I had a few friends, and it made it possible to make it through. But if you are alone for a long time, it'll start to feel like hell. It'll start to feel like death. That's the way that Jean Vanier talks about loneliness when he talks about the work he's been doing in these communities called L'Arche Communities. I've spoken about this before, too. So L'Arche is this movement 
uh, started in, in other parts of the world, Canada and France, and made its way here uh, of folks who live in community, able-bodied and disabled together in what they would call deep and real friendship. So it's not about one group saving the other group. It's about both groups laboring together in this life. And I got to work at a nonprofit in North Carolina that was built on this model of L'Arche called, uh, called Reality Ministries. And one of the things that they did there was partner with kids and adults with special needs, and they called it Real Friends. Very specifically brought the language of friendship virtue into our life together. So it wasn't so much that we were doing work for them, but that together we were striving after the risen Christ. Worship was collaborative and it was messy and it was fun and it was beautiful. I remember this one young woman, about 17 years old, uh, who came from a pretty privileged background with a lot of sort of the, all the performing you have to do as a 17-year-old young woman in the world. And she said that when she came to this space with these friends, that uh, it was the first place where she could be herself, where she could let go of pretension and just be seen. And somehow that was restorative and was was healing. So my loneliness and isolation, of course it felt like hell or of course it felt like death because we are built for connection. Folks who live with disabilities and do not have family structures that hold them often are in deep places of loneliness and isolation. Physical, mental, social, those sort of things, they can turn us into islands and it's, it's really painful. Friendship is the is the answer or the the antidote in that space. There's this idea I want to introduce you to today called the scandal of particularity. And the idea behind this is that it seems as though in the scriptures that God loves certain people at like a really heightened level. That there is a particular aim to God's affection and God's relationship with humanity particularly, right? So like Moses. Moses gets a lot of attention from God. Why does Moses get all this attention and not not Aaron or Miriam? That's a particular kind of affection. And so it becomes this this tension that, that is at play with, well, God is love and God loves all of us. So why does it seem like God is zoning in on just a few individuals in the scripture. This becomes the scandal of particularity. Are you following me with this? What's What I believe is actually happening here, and this kind of tags on with this theological concept, is that God's love is made manifest in the micro, in the intimate. It's very hard to understand what it means to love the whole world. But it is understandable to know what it means to love Judah and Corey, for me, right? I can... I can hold that love. I can aim that love and affection. But it's hard to figure out how to love all of you at once. So the goal is to learn how to love each of you at once. Does that make sense? That's the scandal of particularity. My pastor in Dallas would say it this way. God loves all of us by loving each of us. There's something about... God's particular love that would inform our affections and how we aim them in this world. There's a great line in C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters. Do you know about Screwtape Letters? It's this uh, sort of fictional account of a devil 
kind of this demon and, and this demon's apprentice, and they're talking about how to cause havoc on humanity. It's hilarious and it's terrifying. I think y'all been through it in your small group before. Uh, and so there, there's all of this conversation that happens in there. But here is what C.S. Lewis writes about the scandal of particularity. This is the older demon talking to the younger demon, like you do. It says, do what you will, but there is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient soul. So the human is the patient for the demon at work. It's a really fun book. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors whom he meets every day and to thrust his benevolence into the remote circumference to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real and the benevolence or the kindness largely imaginary. There is no good at all in inflaming his hatred for some foreign group if at the same time he has this habit of charity that's growing up between him and his mother or his employer or the man he meets on the train. Think of your human as a series of concentric circles, his will being the innermost, intellect coming next, finally fantasy. You can hardly hope at once to exclude from all the circles everything that's of God, right? This is the demon talking. How do you get God out of someone's life? You can't fully push it out. So you must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they're finally located in the circle of fantasy and all the desirable quantities inward into the will. The desirable ones being like evil and sin and destruction. If you're a demon, desirable is bad. Okay. All sorts of virtues will be painted in fantasy, approved by the intellect, or even by some measure loved and admired. But these will keep a man from the devil's house. Indeed, when this person shows up at the devil's door, they might be all the more amusing for having pushed virtue out to the circumference and bringing malice to the center. What this reminds me of are folks who feel like deeply, deeply convicted about the world, and their best answer to that is to tweet about it to the masses. What would it mean to love the near one, the enemy that's right across from you? This is the scandal of the particular. To cross over those in your shared space, on the train with you in your office, across the dinner table, the next pew, and move out to some imaginary person that you could aim your love and affection for. This is not the idea of virtue. It is virtue enacted. And friendship becomes the space where we might enact virtue. Virtue being our lives shaped more in the image of God. Some scripture. This isn't scripture. Friendship holds hands with the idea of covenant in the Bible. Covenant is a grounding understanding for the relationship dynamics between two groups. So like kings have covenants, right? You cut a covenant from one nation to the other, and that sort of shapes your life together. We're not going to go at war with each other because we have a covenant, a promise of peace. We'll trade goods with one another. So when God begins a relationship with humanity in the book of Exodus, the Israelites, the language is that of covenant, of promise. And friendship has this same sort of language. So do you remember ever being a kid and writing a note like this? Do you, do you, I did, but not in seventh grade because I didn't have any friends in seventh grade. I was too scared to write the note. But 
when you were brave enough to see someone that you thought, I think I like you, I want to hang out with you, and you would actually ask them to be your friend? Has anyone done that in the last week or the last month or the last year? The last person you ask to be friends if you're married is your spouse. And you ask them, do you want to hang out with me forever? And they're like, yes, I'll hang out with you forever. We just don't do this anymore. This is deeply, deeply vulnerable. Kind of like, you ever have that person in your life and you realize like, oh, I think we're friends now. We never actually said we were trying to be friends, but I think we're friends. But what would it mean to intend a friendship, to promise a friendship, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish? Rich, like that language of marriage, that is the language of covenant. What if that was the language of friendship? We have examples of this in the Bible. If you turn to the book of Samuel, the, the sort of penultimate friendship in the scriptures is that of David and Jonathan. David, who becomes King David, and Jonathan, who is the son of King Saul, who is David's mortal enemy, so there's already a problem. At some point, it becomes clear that Saul is going to try to kill David. And so Jonathan and David, they literally, they fall in love with one another. It says that their hearts and their souls were knit together. And David loved Jonathan like he loved his own self. It's a beautiful picture of affection born in the midst of trial and struggle. But there comes a point where they're about to part ways because Saul is on David's heels. And Jonathan is going to stand between David and death and convince Saul to turn the other way. Can't quite convince his father to do that. So David and Jonathan have to say goodbye. And it's this really sad part in the book of Samuel. It's in chapter 20 of the first book of Samuel. When they meet again, and it's clear they're saying goodbye, it says, David rose from behind a stone heap where he was hiding, and he bows down with his face to the ground, bows three times, and then they kiss one another, and then they weep together, they cry together. Who will you cry with? It says, David cries all the more. And then Jonathan said to David, go in shalom, go in peace. Since both of us have sworn in the name of the Lord, they have made a covenant with one another, a friendship. Promise saying, the Lord shall be between me and you. And between our kids and their kids and their kids forever. They cut a covenant of friendship. And the way that they name the truth of that friendship is they say, in this promise that we are making, we are setting the divine right in between us. So that when we see the other, when we think, when we yearn for the other, we pass through God. And God is sitting here mediating our friendship, our affection. That is the language of covenant. And so each stage along the way, this is the way that the Bible talks about friendship. Abraham, Moses, and the twelve, they all are claimed as friends of God. These are all the groups that sort of set the trajectory of our relationship with God. Abraham's the father of the faith in the book of Genesis. Moses becomes the great prophet and deliverer in the book of Exodus. The 12 tribes become the 12 disciples in the New Testament. And each one of these becomes a dimension of friendship with God. So I'll just show you where it is real quick so we can see it together. This is from the book of James. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called 
God's friend. That scripture, by the way, takes place in the middle of a section talking about how good works, how our actions in the world are the ways that we make true our love and affection. So it's not the idea that I care about you. It's that I actually show up and care about you. When things are difficult, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. This is from Exodus 33. This is right after the golden calf story, when the people go crazy with the golden calf and everything falls off the tracks and a whole bunch of people die and God's had it and God's going to just like, this is done. We're done with these people. And somehow Moses's relationship with God is such that Moses can argue God out of doing a thing. That is friendship if it's anything. And it says in chapter 33, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, whatever that means. As one speaks to a friend. God is two things at once in this story and in our own story. God is power and terror and the fear of the Lord and what is going to happen. And this relationship makes me tremble a bit. That is God. That is Yahweh. That is the God of the mountain, the God of creation, the God who will put all things right, the God who will slay the dragon. That And then God somehow speaks to God's people face to face like a friend. We are asked to hold these twin understandings of the divine intention and and also in harmony with one another. The last one, Jesus begins to unpack for humanity what God's intention has been toward humanity all along. Jesus is not here to tell a new story about God, but to tell the truth of the story that God has been saying all along. And so Jesus gathers together 12, reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in John chapter 15, this great prayer of hope of what might become You get this passage. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. I'm going to read just a little bit more of that passage. It's worth hearing a little bit more. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I don't call you servants anymore because servant doesn't know what the master's doing, but I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything that I've heard from the Father. This line, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's like Jesus slides that note across, right? Will you be my friend? Check yes or no. Could you imagine receiving that? I didn't choose you. Or you didn't choose me, I chose you. Now, there's a tragedy wrapped inside of this passage, which is Jesus says, friends lay down their lives for one another. And Jesus goes on to show us what that looks like on the cross. The problem is all these people Jesus just has named as friends, they don't stick around in that moment of need. The friendship is at this point one dimensional. Jesus is still teaching them, is schooling them in what it means to love one another like friends. 
Jesus stays put in suffering while everyone else flees, except for the women. There are some women who, I think, understand friendship, understand what it means to need one another and to survive, and they stay put at the cross and stay put at the tomb. We have this sense, I think, I know I have before, that friendship means friends are the people that you never argue with. Friends are the people that make you feel better about yourself. Now, I see you, Bill, making a face because you know, because you have friends and we've talked about some of your good friends. You know that argument is a part of friendship. How, but you're, you're, you wouldn't say, it, but you're wise. This, you're schooled in friendship. But there is this sense that relationships that mean anything to us cannot have conflict in them. And if there's conflict present in a relationship, then it means that something is wrong. And so we do anything we can to avoid struggling with one another. This is part of the reason we can't talk to one another about anything about our common life together. Because the presence of tension or struggle means that you're my enemy now because you and I don't agree on everything. You're not my enemy anymore, don't worry. Marriages are like this. You think this when you first get married. Like, this is the person who I never have to fight with. When I meet somebody in premarital counseling and they tell me, listen, we love each other so much because we've never fought with one another. Mandy, you're a counselor. You know that's a problem, right? <laughs> Give it a minute. Just give it a minute. That means they don't care. That means they don't care. Yeah. The language of covenant, we talk about this a lot in our congregation, is also the way that we begin to describe what it means to belong to this community, what it means to belong in this family of faith. And we bring that language of covenant into it because I know this as a pastor at my core. If you stay along here long enough, you're going to make some 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 tension, some sparks fly. We're not going to always get along with each other. We're not going to agree on everything. And so promises, covenants, are what bind us together long enough to struggle toward good ends. Marriage is nothing if not a place where we will stay put long enough that we might be formed more in the image of God. If every time it gets hard, we cut and run, then there's something that we are missing about deep friendship. It's why, like in the book of Proverbs, it talks a lot about friendship. It talks about struggle. I'll read a couple for you. From Proverbs 27. Well meant are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The wounds of a friend. Says something similar in 17. A friend loves at all time, and kinfolk are born to share adversity. When Jesus does this prayer in John 15 for his disciples, for his followers, and starts to talk about a friend, someone who lays their life down, Jesus is bringing the language of suffering and struggle into the center of friendship. I've, I've said this before, right? That anybody who's been like close friends to us as a couple, at some point we have a fight with and we don't talk to for a while. You know this is true. And if we make it through that time, then we are like friends forever. And I could tell you the folks that we've done it with, that we've struggled with, that we've... And then we've been like fully who we are. Ah, I'm a mess. You're a mess. Are we going to hang out together after this? You've seen all of me now. I've seen all of you now. Friendships that span time. Who's had a friend for longer than 10 years? Like 20. 
30? 40? What? Those people are special to you, right? Jeanette, you often have folks who come and visit you at the Scholler Hotel, you call it. And uh, when I meet them, I can, I can see that affection that's been born over decades. Friendship is a school for love. It is a place of practice. The reason that it is so essential for our life together is that there are things that you are just not going to get good at practicing by yourself. Like forgiveness. That takes somebody else bugging you. And that takes you screwing up and learning that someone else will forgive you. That's a school of love. This at its best is what marriage is. We often think about marriage as this sort of like romantic ideal. And that's what all the songs talk about or the rapture of romance. That's the language of eros or the erotic version of love. But the filial love or the the friendly or brotherly or sisterly love is actually the place where most of our marriages live most of the time. Like we're not making out all the time with each other. We're just making this work together. We're shoulder to shoulder looking forward into the world. Choosing a partner is to say, you're the person that I'm going to struggle through life with. And I'm going to struggle through life with this person. And I'm going to become with this person. At its best, a marriage built on friendship becomes something that endures in a beautiful, beautiful way. And makes that couple a source for good and blessing in the world. Sometimes I feel like a precise intention of affection toward Corey, Judah, and Ruthie is the way that I learn to love you all, for instance. That I learn to love the world is by learning to love these folks well. That's the scandal of particularity. And we need schools of love. We have to have places of practice. Do you know what the people of God are called? They are named Yisrael or Israel. And that is chosen because of the deep meaning behind the word, which is the one who struggles with God. Yisrael, those who struggle El with God. Built into their identity as the people of God is this work to do, is this struggling that we will do together. Is key to our becoming the people of God. So last week we talked about community as a place of necessary friction where we are allowed to get on each other's nerves so we can provoke one another into love and good deeds. That we can spur one another along. David White says that friendship is also the realm of constant mutual forgiveness. To learn to forgive one another is to learn what it means to be forgiven by God. Stay put for long enough to discover the goods only possible over time. Born out of mutual struggle with one another. Uh, Dr. John Gottam, who's written several important books about marriage, talks about the presence of deep friendship is often the most sturdy marker of an enduring relationship. So happy marriages are based on deep friendship. 
By this, I mean a mutual respect for and enjoyment of each other's company. These couples tend to know each other intimately. They're well-versed in each other's likes, dislikes, personality, quirks, hopes, and dreams. They have an abiding regard for each other and express this fondness, not just in the big ways, but in little ways, day in and day out. There's a reason that the scriptures talk about God's love for us as one of marriage. The, The church is called the bride of Christ. This is the language of deep friendship. And what does it mean to be friends with God? What does it mean that God wants to be friends with us? That the divine, who's made all of this, and is healing all of this, sees each of you, and loves each of you, and me. Has made a vow of friendship with the world. And somehow in that love and affection puts it all back together. So I'm actually going to challenge you this week. If you don't have someone in your life that you would name and claim as friend in the way that we have talked about it today, then by all means, this is the place, like a buffet, you can choose one. I'll point them out. If you have a friend who has been meaningful to you, who has sustained you across struggle, then you should call them. You should write them a letter. You should go get coffee with them. You should give thanks for them. Friendship born inside the people of God is the only way that we can make this walk work. you are lonely you are not meant to be that way you are worth being seen and known and there are people here who would love to know you to see you if you have something wrong with someone you need to go say you're sorry You need to find a way to forgive if that person has been that friend. And then let me just say a real quick practical note before we pray. Be careful who you're friends with. The book of Psalms, the very first verse of the very first chapter, gives a warning about spending your time and affections with people who might form you in bad sort of ways. If you have a friendship that is toxic, that is built upon only utility and is not one built on virtue and shared convictions, then take a breath and recategorize. And for those of you who are my friends, thank you. You know who you are. Thank you. I am better because you have shown me the ways that I might be better. I understand more about God's love and affection for me because of the way you have loved me. And that is truly the gift of being in this place. It's the gift I give thanks for every day when I can be that aware. So let me say thank you to God for all of us here. Would you pray with me?
God, it's, uh, it's a little much that you might really see and know us, each of us. Love each of us. I confess for me, God, that it is safer if I assume that you love the whole world and don't really notice me. But it is with some amount of courage and trepidation, God, that I I say sorry and ask for forgiveness for the ways that I've not believed that you're for me, that I've not believed in friendship with you. God, forgive me and forgive my friends here for carrying that disbelief into the world, for wrecking friendships that could have carried me closer to your heart. Give us all an awareness that we belong to one another. And give those in this place who are lonely companionship. And a growing awareness that they were built to be loved by other people. Because you love us. So love us back into wholeness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.